The sermon today is taken from Romans 7, verses 7 to 25. This is the word of God. The law and sin. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we're continuing today in our series, the book of Romans, and I'm sure at this point that you've noticed the book of Romans is a pretty theologically heavy book, and the sections can be quite repetitive. Now, our, our section today, it's still theologically heavy, and you may still find some of the content a bit repetitive uh, with the passages we've studied before, but there is a slight switch in both the content and the style in which Paul chooses to deliver the content. This part of the book, at least to me, feels a bit more personal than the previous ones. Look at how many personal pronouns Paul uses here. I died because of the law. The law killed me. I do things that I don't want to do, you see. What Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to bring these theological realities that he's been teaching down to the heart level. He's trying to personalize it. 
But it's important to understand here that when Paul says I or me in this passage, he's not just talking primarily about himself or his own journey or his own experiences in, in his uh, uh, Christian walk. He's kind of using them in such a way that's meant to be relatable to anyone's journey and anyone's experience who's ever tried to seek God, right? Uh, whoever has tried to be a better person by obeying God's laws, or specifically what Paul means here by obeying the Ten Commandments. And I think it's safe to say that that would describe the majority of people, right? We're, we're all trying to be better people. We're all, you know, generally speaking, I think, in agreement that the Ten Commandments is a good thing, uh, accepted standards of God's description of what it means to be good. So we try and strive to obey them and, 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 and do good. And, and I think what Paul does here is he puts into words or he, he vivifies the emotions that many of us actually feel, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, as we attempt to become better and as we attempt to obey God's commandments. What is it we actually feel when we try to do that? You know, what's going on in our heart? And Paul here, it's kind of like the really honest version of us, right? He, he admits things that we often have a hard time admitting or things that we often deny feeling at all, but actually do feel, if we're really honest, about uh, our experiences as we obey God's laws, okay? So, so Paul's going to take us here through this journey, and it's supposed to be indicative to, to all of our journeys um, uh, of seeking God, of becoming better people, of obeying the Ten Commandments. And in our first point, in verses 7 to 13, Paul is going to describe his experience of trying to obey God's laws before he was a born-again Christian. And the second point in verses 14 to 23 Paul's going to describe his experience of trying to obey God's laws as a born-again Christian. And then in my last point, in verses 24 to 25, Paul's going to describe the mixed emotions he, he often feels as a Christian who is trying to best obey God's laws. Okay? So those are the three points we have today. Let, let's get into it. The, the first point is Paul was a hopeless fighter. And the second point is that Paul was a struggling victor. And the third point is that Paul was a thankful mess. A hopeful fighter, a struggling victor, and a thankful mess. Okay, let, let's start with our first point, Paul the hopeless fighter. So this whole passage, it's about Paul's experience as he comes in contact with the law of God, with the Ten Commandments. But again, it's not meant to be read as a step-by-step -step timeline of his own personal life journey, but it's kind of written to be uh, indicative of, of all of our journeys, right, of how we perhaps or uh, how we should feel when we're confronted with the Ten Commandments. And first, I want us to notice in verses 7 to 13, Paul uses the past tense here. Look at verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Verse 11, sin deceived me. Verse 13, it was sin producing death in me. Okay, whereas in verses 14 to 25, Paul switches to the present tense. I do not do what I want. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. I do not do the good I want. You see the switch there? What Paul is trying to point out here is that verses 7 to 13 is meant to display how the Ten Commandments affected him before he was a Christian, and verses 14 to 25 is meant to display how the Ten Commandments affected him after he was a born-again Christian. And there's a lot of uh, uh, different thoughts about that out there, but, but uh, Calvin and the majority of uh, the Reformed uh, commentaries out there uh, would agree uh, with this distinction. So, so let's first 
talk about the Ten Commandments and how it affected him before he was a Christian. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee. So, so he was determined to obey the Ten Commandments, right? He, he was convinced that the way to become a better person, the way to become a more righteous and a good person is by obeying the Ten Commandments. And this is how many of us, I think, think today, right? If we want to become a better person, we got to obey the Ten Commandments. But if Paul's totally honest here, which he is, as he tried to do that, he didn't end up finding the Ten Commandments to be a tool that can help him to become more righteous at all. As he tried to obey the Ten Commandments, it instead made him realize just how sinful he was. Now, now this is the repetitive part because we've, Paul's talked about this in the previous passages, but just, just hang with the text for a little bit. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say, Paul says, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. See, instead of making him more righteous, the law ended up just showing Paul how sinful he was. You, you know how a light shines into, into a dusty room, right? And all of a sudden, um, within that ray of light, you start to see all kinds of dust and particles in the air that you didn't see before. Now, the light didn't create the dust. The dust has always been there. The light just, just revealed it. That's what the Ten Commandments did to Paul. It, it was a light that revealed just how dusty Paul's heart was. Now, some may ask, well, isn't that a good thing? Right? Shouldn't that help Paul to be a better person then? Because now he kind of knows where the dust is. Right? He, he can just start cleaning up. Well, no, it's, it's not that easy. And that's why Paul, in verse 7, very intentionally used the Tenth Commandment. As an example, what is the Tenth Commandment? Do not covet, or do not be jealous of others. Okay, that's what Paul says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, why would Paul use the Tenth Commandment here to explain this example, do not covet? Why was that the one he chose to make his point? Because out of all the Ten Commandments, this one is the one that deals particularly with the attitude of the heart. See, if Paul were to choose from one of the other ones, you know, do not murder, for example, some people may have still room to say, oh, okay, do not murder. Got it. Thanks for pointing that out for me, God. I see that's a sin now. I won't do it. Done. Or don't steal, you know. Some people may have still room to say, okay, don't steal. Thanks for pointing that out. I, I see that's a sin now, so I'm not going to do it. You know, or, you know, obey the Sabbath. Great, I'll go to church on Sundays. You know, these are the commandments. People, the way it's written, might still give people room to justify um, that they actually can obey it and that they're being better people by obeying it. But, but the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, you know. Try obeying that one. Try never again to be jealous of anyone. God told you not to do it, right? He, he pointed out where the dust is. So go ahead, let's clean it up. Don't ever be jealous at anyone ever again. Not as easy, is it? You know, when you see that certain someone having a great life on Instagram. You know, thank God for his sovereign wisdom that for some reason he's decided to give that person more resources than you. Don't be jealous. Trust in God's sovereignty and provision. Go ahead. When your sibling gets praised for having certain things happen in their life that didn't happen in yours, don't be jealous. Don't covet. Celebrate them. 
uh, uh, be happy for them. Don't sulk. Don't covet. You see how hard that is? When you pray to God that he give you certain things in life, but yet decides not to give it to you, don't covet. Say instead, thank you, Lord, for clarifying. No or not yet is an answer. And at this point, I choose to trust in your sovereign mercy. <laughs> don't covet. You know, it's not, it's not so easy to do that. That's Paul's point here, you know. Who here can say that we constantly do that, not covet without failing? See, the ten, the ten Commandments, Paul's trying to say here, is more than just external compliance. It's a matter of the heart, and, and not just the Tenth Commandment. The, the Tenth Commandment was written that way to kind of hint at us that, you know, hey, don't be fooled. God looks at the heart. So all these other commandments from 1 to 9, it's not just about external compliance. God actually looks at the heart as well. You know, it's not just about going to church on the Sabbath. It's about actually, truly worshiping. It's not just about not murdering and not committing adultery, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. It's about being angry in your brother with your heart and about not lusting in your heart. It's all really about a heart issue. If you look at the commandments that way, far from becoming a list of good things we can do to become better people, all of a sudden we realize it's actually a list of perfect things that is impossible for us to constantly do, you know? Go and try and worship God with all your totality of mind, heart, soul, and don't be distracted by other things come Sunday morning. <laughs> In quarantine or not, you know, who, who can do that? Never be jealous of anyone ever again. Never have a lustful desire. Uh, in your heart, be awakened from somebody else that is not your spouse. Don't ever have a hint of anchor to any, you know, no one can do these things. We know where the dust is. That's not the problem. The problem is that we just can't seem to clean it up. We can't. And that's the point. But on top of that, not only did the Ten Commandments make Paul realize how incompetent he is to attain righteousness on his own, in a twisted way, it kind of made him sin even more. Look at verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Produced, not just identify, not just reveal, but produced. It, in a weird way, made Paul want to sin even more. But, but he, here's what's important. We've got to be very careful here. Paul isn't saying that the law made him sin. No, verse 12 clearly says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. We can't blame God's laws for this. What made Paul sin? His own sin did. Look at verse 8 again. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It was sin's fault. What Paul is saying here is that not only was a sin in his heart revealed by the Ten Commandments, but in a twisted way, the sin in his heart also used the Ten Commandments sort of like strong caffeine that made it more energetic about sinning. Liam, my uh, two-year-old boy, he's getting to a point where he's starting to rebel a little bit more than before, okay? And there's this new thing he does now where he starts to throw things, just random things, breakable mostly, and I clearly remember, remember not uh, telling him not to do that. You know, Liam, when he would have something in his hand, don't do that. Don't throw that. It'll break. I, I gave him a command to not throw things. But I remember very well 
when I first started to command him to not throw things in a twisted way, and parents, I think most of you can relate here, in a twisted way, instead of making him stop, it kind of made him want to throw things even more. I remember at one point, I was sitting on the couch. This is actually what happened. I was watching TV on the couch, and he walked by, and he looked straight at me. Like, I'm talking about eye contact. And he grabbed the TV remote, and he positioned his hand to throw it, still making eye contact with me. And I remember very clearly saying, don't you do it. (laughs) Don't you do it. And I kid you not, right after I said that, still keeping eye contact, he threw the remote down to the ground as hard as he could, and it broke. And I... I believe he even smirked a little bit when he did it. And it's almost as if me giving him the command not to do it in a twisted way made him want to do it even more. That's kind of what Paul is is getting at here. Sin, Paul continues in verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me even more covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. For sin to lie dead apart from the law, doesn't mean that sin didn't exist before the law was written. He means, subjectively speaking, that after the Ten Commandments were given, instead of subduing sin, it actually energized it. Look at verse 9. After the law was given, Paul says, sin came alive. And do you not at times feel this? Do you not at times feel the rush or, or the high from being able to tell someone, you're not the boss of me? You're not the boss of me. There's, there's a rush that comes with that, isn't there? Now, I'm not saying rebelling against authority is always bad. The whole Reformation happened because someone was brave enough to do that. All, all I'm saying is that, is that the rush and the high that we feel, it doesn't discriminate. The laws we rebel against could be good or bad. It doesn't matter. The, the rush is still produced. The fight alone energizes us, you know, the, the chance to assert my power produces this, this joy almost. And, you know, it's interesting to see that Israel themselves in the Old Testament, they didn't carve up a false god in Exodus chapter 32 until God told them not to in Exodus chapter 20. It's hopeless, Paul's saying, It's hopeless to try and use the Ten Commandments primarily as bullet points to increase in righteousness. It's hopeless. You may go to church, you know, or whatever religious temple you go to. You may read the Bible or other religious books. You may not harm people or do bad things. But look in, Paul is saying. Don't let all that external compliances trick you. Look in. Be honest. You've been trying to obey them for years. And do you actually believe now that you are any more righteous than you were when you first tried to obey them? Do you? Or do you deep inside feel more like a helpless fighter who's tried and tried and tried but continually fail and fail and fail because that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, that's what he felt. He kept fighting and fighting and fighting. It was hopeless. And you know what it did to him? It led him to the cross. When Jesus said hunger and thirst for righteousness, he didn't mean just try really, really hard to pursue it more on your own. He meant come to a spot where you realize that you do not and cannot possess it on your own. You can only hunger and thirst for something that you don't possess. Come to that point. 
And that's what Paul realized. He was a Pharisee. His whole life he gave to the law. His whole life he fooled himself thinking that because I obey the Ten Commandments, I'm good. But that's because he was too easily satisfied with external compliance. But when God illumined the eyes of his heart, he was unable to be honest with the actual state of hopelessness he was in. And he was enabled then to embrace the gift of the cross, to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But now, it's not like after becoming a Christian, life all of a sudden became nice and dandy for Paul, right? He didn't go from being a hopeless fighter to just total bliss and rest. He went from being a hopeless fighter to a struggling victor, which brings us to our second point. Paul now, starting in verse 14, speaks in the present tense, okay? And this is one huge reason, among many others, of why John Calvin and the majority of commentators out there agree, and as Calvin himself says at this point, Paul is addressing himself as a regenerate man, as a born-again man, as a Christian. And, and this is important for us to understand because I think there's another misconception people have about Christianity out there, and it's clarified here. See, many people think that once you become a Christian, once you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all of a sudden, obeying the law becomes easy. It just becomes something you just naturally, easily do. But after reading this passage, that doesn't seem like that was Paul's experience at all. Yes, Paul was forgiven. Yes, in Christ, his legal status before God is made righteous. And yes, Paul now uh, is primarily identified uh, or identifies himself as a righteous person and no longer as a sinner. That's not his primary identity anymore. That's why in verse 16, as he describes what happens when he sins, he says this, I do not do what I want. It is no longer I who do it, right? See, the I here, or, or the ego in Greek, is no longer the one that identifies primarily as a sinner. It is no longer I who do it, right? There's a new creature here involved. But, but, here's a confusing part, it is still him that does it. Isn't that weird? Look at verse 17. It is, not, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. So, so Paul isn't blaming some external force out there for his sin. It, it's still him that sins, but it's not him, but it is him. You, you see how confusing that is? What, what's the point here? The point is that even after receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, even after no longer being someone who is ultimately identified as a sinner here, Paul still says that there are leftover sins still all mixed up and jumbled up within him, in him. It's really confusing, isn't it? It's all so mixed up in him that it doesn't only cause him to do bad things, but it even causes the good things he does to be impure. And I think this is what a lot of Christians even experience today, which, which makes it so, so confusing. Look at the second part of verse 18. Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, Paul here obviously doesn't mean he can't do anything right. That's not what he's saying. What he means is even the right things that he does, he can't fully carry it out. And, you know, do we not find it true that when we do something good, like, for example, tithe, you know, when you reach out from your wallet and put the money into the offering box, is there not a small voice in the recesses of your heart that whispers, good? 
Now the people around you can know you are the kind of person that tithes. Is there an is that not there? Maybe a small and short whisper, but is it not there? Do you not find it true that when you're appointed, say, as a leader in church or when you're known as a part of a service team at church, it's a good thing, but yet there's a small voice in the recesses of your heart that whispers, finally, finally, I'll get a little bit of respect from these people that I've been craving for. When a pastor finds his ministry growing, do they not find it true that there's a small voice in the recesses of their hearts that whispers, you've done it now. You've made it now. Take the credit. Go ahead. Look at what the labors of your hands have done. When we want to do something good, Paul says in verse 21, evil lies close at hand. There's this tension. There's this struggle, even after being a Christian, of not only having sins that we still do, but even having sins contaminate the good things we do. This is what Augustine, one of the most famous church fathers, calls luctam Christianum, or the Christian struggle. And if you know Augustine's story, who was a recovering sex addict, you would know that the struggle for him was real. After becoming a Christian, your tendencies to sin doesn't just disappear into thin air. And this is what can cause somewhat of a existential crisis, right, of sorts in the life of, of many true born-again Christians, because it's, it's really confusing, you know. Look at then in verse 25, Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Notice in both cases, I, Paul says, I'm doing it. There's not two eyes. There's only one eye. There's one ego, and this one eye, or ego, at the same time, Paul says, serves the law of God with my mind, but yet also serves the law of sin with my flesh. <laughs> Luctam Christianum. It's a struggle. <laughs> and this passage, I think, in many ways, it's meant to comfort you, Christian, and, and to empathize with you. Paul is saying here that if the cravings you have for sin if the insidious desires you have for sin didn't just magically disappear into thin air when you become a Christian, then join the club. Now, when, when I preach, I like to predict how what I'm saying might be taken, and, and I suspect, rightfully so, that at this point, some people might be getting nervous, thinking that I'm excusing sin too much. Because it does sound like I'm saying, oh, it's, you know, it's okay for Christians to sin. They still struggle with sin. Paul did. Augustine did. You know, so just, just don't worry about it. And, and by doing so, I could potentially mislead pseudo-Christians or, you know, people who claim to be Christians but aren't actually true born-again repentant Christians. I could potentially mislead pseudo-Christians and, and give them a license to be comfortable in their sin. And, and I just want to clarify that's not what I'm trying to say, and, and if somehow I came across uh, saying that, I apologize. That is not uh, my intention. Paul here is not condoning sin, and let me just address for a second that if you do not find it in you a true and real desire to repent and a true and a real desire to pursue righteousness and, 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 and struggle toward it, then you should ask yourself whether or not you do have a relationship with Christ. I think that's, that's a fair thing to say, okay? So let's, let's just confirm I'm not saying it's okay to sin. 
But in the same breath, I do want to emphasize that I don't think this passage was written primarily to disrupt pseudo-Christians. There are passages in the Bible that are written to disrupt pseudo-Christians and to true repentance, like Romans chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 5 to 6. I just don't think this is one of them. I think this passage, yes, is meant to inform the Roman church about Paul's doctrines and what he believes uh, because they've never met before, so he wanted to clarify uh, who he is and what he believes and true orthodoxy. But also, it's hard to not see that this passage was also kind of meant to comfort, discourage Christians who are truly born again, who are truly saved, yet still struggle with sin. Because remember the context of the passage. Paul is out to prove the insufficiency of the law in being able to make us any more righteous or or, or pure. Non-Christians, Paul says, obeying the law cannot make you increase in purity. And Christians, here Paul says, remember, your purity was not attained by your obedience to the law, but by Christ then why do you think your failure to obey the law can now take away that purity? Now, if a pseudo-Christian hears this and runs with it, saying, you know, see, I don't have to obey the law because I'm, I'm saved in Christ, so it's okay to obey. If, if, if you want to take that and run with it, I can't control that, okay? That's, that's on you. I've already said that's not Paul's intention here. Paul's intention is, is to comfort true, torn-up, struggling, discouraged, sin-fighting, Christ-seeking, but at times failing born-again Christians. And I refuse to soften the comfort there just for the fear of it being misused by some. Because if you're that beat-up Christian, then you really need to hear this, that in Christ you are not any less pure now than you were before you failed to obey that command. And the reverse is true as well. In Christ, you are not any more pure than you were before you successfully obeyed that command. Your objective purity has not changed. The pure robe in which Christ has clothed you in when he died for you on that cross cannot be stained with your failures because it was never attained by your success. And I don't know what's going on in everyone's lives who are listening to this right now, but I suspect that some of you really, really, really need to hear this good news. And you know what this gospel did to Paul? It made him thankful. It made him thankful beyond measure, which is our last point. Paul was a thankful mess. A wretched man that I am, he said. He was a mess. Who will deliver me? Who's going to save me? That's when verse 25 comes in. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, notice the encouragement here. Paul is is thanking God for something that will happen in the future. Who will deliver me, Paul says. Future tense. Paul's talking about the heavenly reality here, the full deliverance that will happen in the future. But yet, at the same time, Paul's already thanked God for it, although it hasn't happened yet. Who will deliver me? Thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now he's doing that, you know, in his lifetime. That's weird, isn't it? Why would Paul thank God for something that hasn't fully happened yet? Unless somehow Paul knew that it's a for sure thing. 
that it can't be taken away, that he can't lose it, that there is no place he can run to in which the grace of God will not seek him out. This is the gospel that wrecked him. This is the gospel that saved him. It's not that God might save you or that he's partially saved you, but that if you've received Christ as Lord and Savior truly in your heart and confess that with your mouth, he's fully saved you. You can thank him now. It's going to happen because it already has. You're secure, as the late R.C. Sproul said, not because you hold tightly to Jesus, but because Jesus holds tightly to you. Do you feel the comfort behind Paul's words here? Remember where your hope lies. You, if you gain that hope in Christ and not by your obedience to the law, then why do you think your failure to obey the law now has any power to rob you from that hope? I'm not saying don't be broken over your sin. I'm not saying to have no sorrow over your sin. I'm, I'm saying that you can, in Christ, be sorrowful and thankful at the same time. You're sorrowful because you know that your sin is deeper than you can ever imagine. The Ten Commandments shows you that. But you're thankful because you know that the love of God through Christ goes deeper still. And the Ten Commandments is what that should point to. You're secure not because you hold tightly to Jesus, but because Jesus holds tightly to you, and that's what it means to be a Christian. You know, it's not that you get better and better and better and better and more righteous, more righteous, more righteous by obeying the law, obeying the law, and then after you achieve some kind of level of righteousness, you can then say, now I'm ready to be a Christian. No. But that's how, how many people think the process goes. It's not. It's about getting to a point where you hunger and thirst for righteousness because God's laws has brought you to your knees. And then after that, receiving the forgiveness of Christ. But yet still, after you do that, it's a continual battle with your sin and, and with obeying God's laws. But now you're no longer fighting in a fight you can't win. You're fighting a fight you can't lose. Why? Because your king has secured your victory for you. That's the Christian walk. And that's what I hope the Ten Commandments brings all of us to, to our knees so that we may hunger and thirst for righteousness and receive the offer of the cross that has fully redeemed us and saved us if we are to receive it. And as a Christian, to continue to struggle and to fight and not to be disenchanted because your old self still entangles. Keep fighting. The battle's been won. I hope this has encouraged you, and I hope um, it has clarified to you the love of Christ, or I should say, and stay with this passage, the love of God, which he showed to you in Christ on the cross. Receive it and come into worship because of it. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the audacity of our hearts in thinking that we are not that sinful to where somehow the Ten Commandments is just a checklist of good things to do that can then get us closer to you and purify us and make us better people. If we truly see the depths of our sin, we will see what Paul saw here, and that is the Ten Commandments. All it did is show us 
all the dust in our hearts and show us how we're unable to clean that dust up because it's not just matters of external compliance, it's a matter of a heart internal attitude. And I pray, Father, um, as we as Christians, those who have received you as Christ and Lord and Savior, as we hear this passage and we struggle and fight with our sin and fall into it often and off, over and over again, I pray uh, that you would uh, remind us of this gospel of grace so that we'd continue the battle, not with the anxiety of possible defeat, but with the security of sure victory. And therefore, be thankful to the deliverance you've purchased for us, even if it's not yet fully realized, even in the current mess that we're all still in. Help us, Father, give us more mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.